The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. My name is Matthew McDonald. I'm the Director of Office Administration here at Christ Pres, and it is my privilege to share with you today's scripture. Psalm 124, our help is in the name of the Lord. A song of ascents of David. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hello, everybody. Good morning. Great to be with you. Great to hear your your singing voices and uh, just great to have a congregation uh, on Sundays. And uh, uh, I want to just remind us of a few things that that you may not have heard at the beginning if you weren't here at the beginning. Uh, And that is that today, Christ Presbyterian Church, both in person here at Old Decree Boulevard and also uh, online availability. Uh, we're having a congregational meeting, 4 p.m. today, and we're going to uh, uh, to vote on new uh, elders, new deacons, and also new deaconesses. And we are also going to uh, vote to approve both uh, Pastor Russ Ramsey and Pastor Micah Edmondson as associate pastors. That means the congregation Uh, hires them uh, as opposed to just the elders, which is just essentially a full stamp of approval and affirmation from the whole church for both of them, a big day for both of them. And then I will have a 10 to 15 minute or so uh, talk about just the state of Christ Prez in the midst of a global pandemic. And uh, and, uh, hopefully that will be uh, some encouragement to those who are are part of that. Uh, also, as Pastor Filson mentioned earlier, there is a virtual black book. That, that's how you sign your name. You do it online now. You go to christpress.org slash black book, and that is where you can tell us you were here. Uh, that includes those who are in the room. It includes those who are outdoors on the breezeway right now. It also includes those who are uh, participating from home or vacation or in-laws, basements, or wherever it is that you are uh, dialing in from, uh, we want to know you're with us, uh, either either physically or virtually. Uh, you know, like David said earlier, it helps us to serve you. It helps us to shepherd our church uh, better. 
lastly, as, as is the case every week, starting noon tomorrow, Monday, uh, reservations will be open again for uh, in-person worship services at all three locations uh, on July 5th, which is next Sunday. So, so we are studying the Psalms of Ascent uh, right now, and today uh, we are looking at the 124th Psalm, and uh, about this particular Psalm, <laughs> Eugene Peterson said, it is a song of hazard. It is a song of hazard. We're going to look at, 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 at the hazard of what it means to live in a fractured, vulnerable, uh, unstable sometimes world and the God who is our rescuer in the midst of all that. So if you're ever tempted to think that having faith in God, that having faith in Jesus Christ will fix your problems, uh, you will find no support for that idea in the Bible, and you will certainly find no support for that idea uh, in the Psalms. If, if anything, faith in God, faith in Christ, amplifies our problems because it gives us permission not to stuff or deny our problems, but to face them honestly with courage, head on, and also with hope. It frees us to be honest about the hard stuff. Faith does. Uh, faith can also add to our problems. You know, Jesus said in this world, you're going to have trouble. Trust in God, trust also in me. The Apostle Paul said, it's been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. Whenever a non-Christian gets cancer, loses a job, experiences betrayal, receives bad news, there's going to be a Christian somewhere to whom these things also happen. Suffering is universal. Faith will not protect us from it. Sometimes it will amplify and increase our struggles. This psalm here, the 124th, uh, 124th psalm, gives evidence to that. It's filled with metaphor. And uh, this is King David writing. King David wrote about half of the Psalms. And in this one, we see a picture of violence, of instability, of trauma uh, experienced by the people of Israel and by David himself. He says, people rose against us. Their anger was kindled against us. There were also floods and torrents and raging waters. We were like prey in our enemy's teeth. And then, and then he talks about how God has been our rescuer from all of these things. But, but David could be thinking about all different kinds of things from Israel's history and from his own personal history. Uh, from the national history of Israel, he could be thinking of, of Pharaoh, uh, the Egyptian Pharaoh, and how, how Egypt had a, a enslaved and oppressed the people of Israel, and then all of this, you know, all this imagery of floods and torrents and raging waters. Maybe that refers to the Exodus event when God parted the Red Sea uh, so that Israel could escape from slavery. Or maybe David is thinking about when the Babylonians came and took uh, Judah, the tribe of Judah, uh, uh, the southern kingdom into captivity, or maybe when, when the superpower Assyria uh, took the northern kingdom of Israel uh, into captivity and made them slaves. Maybe he's thinking about 
Haman, the belligerent uh, government uh, worker uh, who had it out for the Jews in a similar way that Hitler's Third Reich did uh, in Germany, uh, except in the days of Queen Esther. Maybe David was thinking about the Philistines who were constantly uh, on the attack against the people of Israel. Or maybe he was thinking about his own personal history. King Saul, his predecessor, and, and his, his jealous rage. And King Saul's uh, aggression toward David. Hiring hitmen uh, to take him out. Throwing a spear at him, hoping to kill him with his own hands. Or maybe David was thinking about Absalom's revolt. His own son. Uh, who garnered the support of, of the vast majority of the people in Israel uh, to stage a coup against his dad and dethrone him and take his throne and, and in the process humiliating his father in, in, in several ways in front of the whole nation. He could be thinking about all these things or maybe some of these things, but, but the point for the reader is this. The point for those of us who participate in this prayer is this. The Bible is relatable. To, to human pain. It's relatable to, you know, pandemics and crashing stock markets and, and, and painful home dynamics when you're stuck with each other and getting cabin fever together. There's also a rescue that the Bible provides, and, and there are particularly two human struggles that God comes in to rescue us from. One of, one of those struggles is cynicism toward God. Uh, God rescues us from that. And the other is self-contempt. And then the final, uh, the final thing I'll talk about is, is faith with a filter, uh, where we get to filter our cynicism toward God and also our self-contempt through the gift of grace that has been given to us through Christ. So let's start with cynicism toward God when things get hard. You know, David says pretty boldly with a lot of confidence, the Lord is on our side, you guys. Then verse 6, bless the Lord. He has helped us escape. And then verse 8, our help is in the name of the Lord. Now, now our inner cynic, uh, especially when things aren't going so well, might look at a psalm like this, might look at King David, maybe people from Israel looked at King David and said, well, you could have fooled me because in my experience, if God exists at all, he's the God of no help, not the God of, of help. And for Job's wife, for example, this became a question of integrity. If you know that story, Job is the oldest book in the Bible. And it, it, it pictures a husband and a wife with 10 children, a lot of wealth, a thriving business, pillars of the community, and they lose everything uh, from a terrorist attack. And all 10 of their children are killed in the attack. Uh, they lose property, they lose business, they lose wealth. Uh, Job's uh, afflicted from head to toe with sores. And so, so he's He's really struggling, she's really struggling, same circumstances, very different responses. Job responds to all of this by falling on his knees and worshiping God and, 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 and by saying, you know, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And it says that, that in all of these things, Job did not sin uh, by charging God with wrongdoing. But then Job's wife is watching Job hold tightly to God and, and says, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. 
Curse God and die. You know, for, for her, integrity looked different than, than it looked for Job. For her, integrity means acknowledging that everything we've ever believed about God has been disintegrated. It's lost its integrity. He, God is not who we thought he was. How are you holding on to these old silly notions of a good God who's also in control of everything? How, how could these two things go together? You know, Israel might say after all of their suffering to, to David, your optimism is insulting to us. Pain and joy, integrity does not allow the two things to go together. Those two things, pain and joy, are incompatible. That's what the inner cynic says. So there are two well-known uh, Jewish thinkers and leaders. One is named Rabbi Harold Kushner, and another is named Elie Wiesel. And they, they both uh, were pressed at, at, at certain painful points in their lives to wrestle with this tension that they grew up with, that God is completely loving and God is completely in control. And their experience uh, suppressed them to wrestle and ultimately to uh, disbelieve these things as they once did. Rabbi Kushner wrote a New York Times bestseller called when, ha when Bad Things Happen to Good People. And it was a book, it was sort of a memoir that he wrote out of the experience of his son uh, getting diagnosed with leukemia and then suffering uh, leukemia. Leukemia is a form of blood cancer and he died. And Rabbi Kushner said, essentially the, the summary of the book is that, um, you know, I've grown up with the belief that God is in control of everything, he's sovereign, and he's all loving, but, but, but clearly what has happened in my experience means I've got to let go of one or the other. Either God is sovereign in control, but he's not loving, or he's completely loving, but he couldn't have stopped this. He couldn't have done anything about it. He's not sovereign and in control. And so he says, I can't let go of the idea of the love of God, and so I have to let go of the idea that God could have done something about this. So that was Rabbi Kushner, but then Elie Wiesel, uh, who wrote his own memoir about his experience as a young child in the Auschwitz concentration camps uh, uh, during the Holocaust. He was a young Jewish boy and he grew up, did some writing, some thinking, speaking tour about his, his experiences, won a Nobel Prize, uh, and uh, one of the books was called Night which chronicles his experience as a young Jewish boy in the Holocaust. And he went the other direction uh, from where Rabbi Kushner, Kushner went. And this is what he wrote. It's part of what he wrote in Night. I no longer prayed for anything. I was the accuser and God was the accused. My eyes had opened and I was alone, terribly alone in a world without God, without man, without love or mercy. I was nothing but ashes now. But I felt to myself to be stronger than this Almighty to whom my life had been bound for so long. In the midst of men assembled for prayer, I felt like an observer now, like a stranger. Cynicism is it's a sort of coping mechanism. It's a, it's a numbing agent that protects us from our fear of being abandoned and our fear of being left alone. 
If you're a Bible reader and you've, you've read the book of Genesis, you may remember all the way back in the beginning of things when God created everything and when God created man and woman, the reason why God gave Eve to Adam was this. It's not good for human beings to be alone. I think that's more a statement about our need for community than it is about our need for marriage. I mean, Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul were, were unmarried men, and yet they were surrounded by community, and, 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 and uh, so it, it was a need for community more than anything. And marriage was an answer to that for Adam and Eve. But for Elie Wiesel, for Harold Kushner, for all of us, one of our greatest fears is being abandoned. One of our greatest fears is being left alone. And what cynicism does, what Job's wife did, was to say, you know what, in order to protect myself, I'm going to, I'm going to abandon God before he abandons me. I'm going to leave God first. And that way I don't have to deal with the pain of confusion and mystery and the feeling that maybe my God, my God has forsaken me. Cynicism is a way to shield and, and ultimately to kill and numb our own hearts from the pain of what feels inconsistent. And this is Satan's strategy, by the way. The, the, the enemy of our souls, the serpent in the garden, is a, is a master strategist. And his, his sole purpose, and this is really what the definition of hell is ultimately, is to isolate us. To, to take that statement, it's not good to be alone, and, and to recruit as many of us as he can into isolation. See, Satan doesn't just want to tempt you. He, he wants to adopt you. And he wants to adopt you into aloneness. While God is saying, I want to do the opposite. I want to adopt you into my heart, into my home, into, into the life of my people. The mission of God, it was central to the mission of God, is to set us up so that we're never isolated, so that we're never alone. And Satan, his strategy is to pull us away from that toward the opposite. His end game is that we would be everlastingly isolated. You can hear it in Elie Wiesel's words. Did you catch it? I was alone in a world without God, without love, without mercy. Alone in my fight against demons, alone in my disappointments, alone in life's storms, alone with my pain, with the injustice, with my tears, with things that scared me, alone. You know, for Rabbi Kushner, for Rabbi Harold Kushner, integrity meant saying goodbye to part of God. I've got to say goodbye to the idea that God is in control of everything, that he's omnipotent, all-powerful, so I can hold on to this part of God, which I, I can't imagine living without the love of God. So he said goodbye to part of God. Elie Wiesel said goodbye to all of God. The result is the same. It leaves us lacking the fullness of what God desires to be for us. So that's cynicism toward God, but then there's self-contempt. See, when, when we turn against God or, or against some attribute of God or aspect of God, it, 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 it tends over time to, to flip in the other direction where we start turning 
on ourselves as well. When we read verse 7, where it says, we escaped like a bird. Uh, And then he talks about, you know, the enemy's teeth and everything else. Um, It reminds me how we can also be our own worst enemies. And that's the testimony of scripture as well, that sometimes our greatest enemy is, is us. Reminds me of a scene in Forrest Gump, you know, these words about, you know, escaping like a bird. The, you know, Forrest and his best friend Jenny, they're children, and they're spending time hiding together in a cornfield. And the young Jenny starts to pray these words, God, make me like a bird so I can fly far, far away from here. Now, what she's doing is she's seeking refuge from her violent, volatile, abusive, alcoholic father. And as soon as she can, Jenny leaves home, never to go back again. And, and the contempt that she had felt from her father, uh, she took with her in the form of self-contempt that led her into... Um, a life of numbing herself through hedonism, through drug addiction, through promiscuity, uh, which ultimately um, were left to, to with the educated guests toward the end that she contracted HIV and, and then died from AIDS. This whole time, all the way from their childhood, you know, through, through, through all of these trials in the prodigal life, Forrest Gump, never gave up on Jenny. And this is what Jenny misses until the very end. That there has been a true love by her side the whole time that was never going to leave her, that was never going to forsake her. And it was a love that was unconditional. He loved her for her own sake. And, and at the end of her life, when she is at her lowest point, And when she's at her very worst, she's diseased and dying, filled with regrets, Forrest proposes to her. And she says yes. And they get married, and he cares for her until she dies. So what Brennan Manning called vulgar grace Manning, who was a lapsed Catholic priest, an alcoholic, and a divorcee due to his own drinking issues, said this about the grace of God. My life is a witness to vulgar grace, a grace that amazes as it offends, a grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wage as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 till 5. It works without asking anything of us, but it's not cheap. It's free. Grace is sufficient, even though we huff and puff with all our might to try and find something or someone that it cannot cover. You know, the Jenny in us would say to Jesus in the same way that Jenny said to Forrest, marry you if you only knew the full story. And yet Jesus does know the full story. You know, the the Gospel of John has these 
seven what, what, what we call I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the vine. You are the branches. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the resurrection and the life. There's seven of those in the Gospel of John, the I am statements. But, but there are also some other I am statements that Jesus makes. One is in Matthew uh, chapter 11, when he's speaking to those who self-identify as weary and burdened. He says, I am gentle and humble in heart. I'm a rest giver. You'll find rest for your souls if you come to me. In another place, he says, I am a physician. Now, we live in a healthcare town. I get a little bit offended sometimes, don't you, when, when people call Nashville the Silicon Valley of healthcare. I, I think they ought to call Silicon Valley the Nashville of technology. That's personally what I think. But it's a big healthcare town that we live in, and, and we know this during the pandemic. Uh, our, our friends who are uh, invested as professionals in the healthcare industry have been full on, uh, full on, working overtime, working a lot of hours, motivated to beat this thing because they're motivated to help sick people get well. When Jesus says he's a physician, what he's saying is that part of you that makes you feel shame, that part of you that makes you feel self-contempt, that, that part of you that makes you say, I'm sick, I'm damaged, nobody would want me, that's the part that draws me to you the most. He doesn't say I'm the great police officer, he says I'm the great physician. He doesn't say I'm the great disciplinarian. He says I'm gentle and humble in heart. I'm here to give you rest. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said, God loves to forgive you more than you love to sin. He loves to forgive more than we love to put him in a position where he has to. Verses 1 and 2 King David goes out of his way to emphasize that God is not just on our side now. He has always been on our side. Jesus was on Peter's side as Peter was in the act of betraying him three times. He was on Saul of Tarsus's side as Saul of Tarsus was committing genocide against Christians. That's how helpless and fixed his love is. He has always been on our side. This is rebellious Israel who complained against God in the wilderness, who forsook God for worthless idols repeatedly. He has always been with us. He has always been for us. He says it twice. Whenever you see something repeated in Scripture, it's like putting an exclamation point at the end of it. You look at Matthew chapter 1, we see the ancestry of Jesus and, and those who are included in the, the lineage of Christ. Abraham was a terrible husband. Jacob was a terrible liar. Rahab was a prostitute. Jesse was a horrible father to David. David became a murderer and an adulterer. And the father 
it says in Matthew, of Solomon through the wife of Uriah, through one of his best friend's wives. That's the lineage. That's the genealogy. This is a list of the people that God has always been for. Others also. Read through the Gospels. You'll see that God is on the side also of lepers, of people who are scared in the boat, of people who are living with paralysis, who are mute, who are blind, who are anxious, angry, tired. Jesus is for these people. He's on the side of James and John with their egos when they'd rather have platform than love their neighbor. Lord, let us sit at your right hand and your left hand in glory, even though we haven't earned it. Let us be the ones who share the platform, the stage with you. Peter denies him three times. What does Jesus do? He restores, because I've always been on your side, Peter. Even Judas, if you read Matthew, if you read the gospel according to Matthew, Matthew, in a very short you know, narrative, the only word he can think of for Judas, he can't even mention, it's hard for him to even mention Judas's name, and so he just calls him the betrayer. And yet Matthew, because he has integrity, because he has to tell the story as the story unfolded, also writes that when Judas was in the act of betraying him, while Matthew was calling Judas betrayer, Jesus called him friend. In the middle of the betrayal, friend, do what you've come here for. To the thief on the cross, he says today, you'll be with me in paradise. To those who are killing him, while they're actively killing him, he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He's never left you. He's never forsaken you. And he never will. That's where we get to, you know, sort of the answer to our cynicism toward God and, and our self-contempt. Faith with a filter. What does a filter do? You know, if you're a mechanic or if you make coffee, uh, you know, the, the filter holds on to the stuff that you, you're, you're eventually going to toss out. And it lets through the good, right, pure stuff that you want to have. And the good, right, pure stuff in this regard is lament instead of cynicism. You know, proper lament, like the, the Psalms tell us, when things are wrong with the world, we're supposed to feel sad. We're supposed to be, feel upset and even angry, but in healthy ways that, that, that are born out of longing for the world as God has created the world to be. So there's lament and also hope. It's like Paul says in Thessalonians to bereaved people, we grieve, but not like those without hope, not like those who are cynical or, or despairing. We grieve, but with hope. Because it's a future. The, the final chapter, which is the only one that will not stop, is, is the chapter after everything's been filtered through. And the disposable stuff gets disposed of, and all that's left is glory and beauty and life and strength and peace. But what is the filter? The filter is made of three things. Who God is, what God has done, and what God will do. Who God is. He's the one who's on your side. Verses 1 and 2. He's the one who is your help, who also made heaven and earth. 
He's omnipotent. He's strong. He's powerful. He will fulfill all that he promises to do and to be. He is this robust, undefeatable combination of love and power. You know, Micah Edmondson, who's, um, again, we're going to we're going to affirm him this afternoon as, as uh, our newest uh, associate pastor. Uh, and Micah was preaching at our Cool Springs congregation last Sunday, and I slipped over there to, to hear him. And he gave this true, wonderful story that, 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 that pictures how God is strong for us in the hard times. He told a story about a, about a pastor, an urban pastor named James Whitehead, and he was raising his two children in a very violent uh, uh, urban context in a city. And these two kids, you know, as kids do, part of the developmental process, they, they wanted to be able to walk to the store alone. You know, just the two of them, without dad, without mom, without supervision, without grown-ups, they wanted to, to do it alone and get their gum or their soda or whatever it is that they wanted to get at the store and then come back home. And so, so finally... Their pastor, or their dad and, and, and pastor James Whitehead said, okay, you can do it. The way Micah described what happened next was this. He says, they, the kids, went out the front door, but he went out the back door. They walked down this street, but he walked down a parallel street so he could peek through the whole time and watch them the whole way. And as they were approaching the store, they were confronted by a stray, angry, snarling pit bull. It's a true story. And the, the pit bull started to move toward those two young kids and uh, was eyeing his potential prey. And, it said, and, 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 and then the father stood behind the girls, you know, grabbed a stick, stood behind the girls. The girls' backs are to their father. They, they don't know he's behind them, but the bull does or the pit bull does, and he holds up the stick and says, oh, no, you don't. And, and then the, the, the pit bull walks off, and the girls make their way to the store. Here's what the father said. My children never saw their father, but the dog did. When the dog saw that stick in my hand, he took off running. The children didn't see their father, but trouble did, and trouble responded to an authoritative presence. You know, I mentioned the story of Job a minute ago, and, you know, we get the benefit of all the behind-the-scenes stuff that was happening. This, this sort of cosmic, you know, debate. It wasn't really a war. It was a debate. You can't war with God. You're going to lose. But it's a debate. And... You know, we ask ourselves, well, why would God give the enemy of Job's soul a leash so long that, 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 that it would cause all this tragedy to happen? And we find as the story unfolds that God knew exactly what he was doing because he gave Satan enough leash with which to hang himself. He's like the dad, you know, facing down the pit bull, and we don't even see or discern or know that, that, that the dad is behind us holding a stick against trouble. And then the trouble flees. That's who God is, sovereign, loving protector, 
what he has done? Well, Jesus didn't hold up a stick. Instead, he was held up on a stick. All these metaphors about being flooded and about the enemy's teeth, you know, biting down on you and about aggressive people who rise up against you. That's what happened to Christ on the cross. This is Psalm is ultimately about Christ on the cross. And then what he will do, he will stay with us. I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. Just like Forrest never left Jenny, but even more so, I will never leave you. He will help us. Our help, as it says here, is in the name of the Lord. Help us with what, we may ask. Consider this. This psalm is a song that the Israelites, with all this history, sang as they ascended together up the hill in the temple to worship God. This psalm is a prayer written by David, who had had spears hurled at him, who was in the abyss of guilt and shame because of the things that he had done, and he's still here. This is how we know God has helped us. We are still here. We're still here. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. He's faithful forever, and he will form us in the midst of all of the trials. Romans 5, we rejoice in our suffering, because in our suffering, perseverance, character, and hope are produced. I made some cookies this past week, and the cookies, if you put the ingredients together, if you, t- if you isolate the ingredients, there's some slimy stuff. Butter, slimy, especially when you let it grow room temperature, go room temperature. Bitter stuff, salt, you eat it by itself, ew, bitter. Uh, if you eat baking powder by itself, ew, bitter. But you put it all together, and you mix it, and you turn up the heat, and out comes the glory. Out comes the glory. In goes the bitterness, up goes the heat, out comes the glory. Behold the methodology of God to make you everything that he has designed and created you to be and to become. There's no way to Easter without Good Friday. There's no way to resurrection without going through the cross. There's no way to glory without walking through the valley of the shadow of death. You know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is a grief expert, not a believer as far as I understand, said this. She said, the most beautiful people are the ones who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of those depths. That's what this is about. But it's also about a God who makes the way out of those depths for those who have known defeat, struggle, and loss.